0: A Japanese on
1: with
2: a an Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Alwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And once again, friends, you join us for chapter two of H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale, the Whisperer in Darkness.
0: Before we get into all this buzzing madness, what is going on?
2: Well, at the time of recording, we're uh, Scott and I, we're doing the October Horror Movie Challenge, watching a film every day, a horror film every day, during the month of October. It's now the 10th of October as we record, and so far I've managed to watch nine films, and I think, Scott, you've already done your 10th. I have, yes. I
0: put out the review just before we started recording.
2: Now, last episode we talked about the highlights so far what about the low light what's been the worst one scott
0: <laughs> well i've been quite lucky so far in that uh, yeah perhaps it's a mistake on my part but i've curated my list of what i'm watching quite carefully and it occurred to me part way through that i haven't gone for any real stinkers i've gone for some oddities like lucio fulci's voices from beyond which is not a good film by any means but it's a damn fun one but the weak point so far I guess, has been a film called Dearest Sister by a a filmmaker from Laos called Matty Doe. And even then, I mean, it's still a relatively good film. It's just a bit dull and a bit derivative. I I watched it because I'd never seen a horror film from Laos before, and apparently the reason for that is that, apart from Matty Doe, no one is actually making horror films in Laos. So she's made, I think, three so far so those are the only three there are yeah i mean it's a, a sort of okay story about spirits from beyond and death omens and stuff like that but it felt a bit plodding
2: that's been the low point and even the low point has been fairly high how about you paul well my low point is on netflix right now compared to amazon prime amazon prime have got Dreams of horror films. Once you start going down the list, it just goes on and on and on. And you never get to the end. But there are some real amateur productions. Oh God, yes. I can't remember what it's called, Jesus Lizard versus the Aliens or something. It's like a <laughs> short and it's absolutely fantastic, but it's like, you know, just a guy in his back garden with some <laughs> plastic lizards or something. It's just nuts. But Netflix, I kind of get the impression that there's a you know, they're not all fantastic. I you know, we all have our own taste, but the feed has kind of been curated and or commissioned or whatever. And and there are films on there of, of a, of a standard. But I mean, I Mm. put the other day Hungerford on there. Oh,
0: right. Yeah. That
2: is so amateurish. I mean, I I showed a bit to Emily, my daughter, and she's like, is this a school production? It's like school level acting. No offense to, to school kids. It's kind of a, you know, nominally kind of zombie ish kind of Shaun of the dead found footage type thing. And it opens up with a guy kind of waking up and putting his camera on and saying, oh, this is I'm doing this for my BTech course, which is a college course in the UK for sort of I't know seventeen year olds And man, it feels like <laughs> somebody who can't act who's seventeen that, that is, is just really poor. I remember reading reviews of it when it first came out, not reviews,
0: sorry, I'd read an article which was talking about the premise, and I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have to see that. And I put it on my list, and it was on my list for ages, and it just never turned up anyway. And so, yeah, it was about a year ago, 18 months ago, it turned up on Netflix, and I thought, oh, fantastic, I'll finally get a chance to see it. And yeah, I made it about 10 minutes in.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I kind of stuck with it, but um, yeah, (laughs) that was not good. Mm. Anyway, what other news do we have? Matt, do you want to tell us what's coming out soon? Well, as we roll closer to Christmas and closer to the end of the
1: year, it's that time when the blasphemous tome sees print again. So, yes, Issue 6 is on its way.
0: With a new Call of Cthulhu scenario set in World War II from
2: our very own Paul Fricker. What's it called, Paul? It's called Operation Varsity, or How to Get Ahead in World War II. Now, I polled our Patreon backers... Because I thought, well, uh, will people want a World War II setting scenario? So I gave them the option of having it set in the modern day or the 20s or World War II, because I could kind of adapt it. Mm. World War II came out head and shoulders above those other two settings. I think because I'd already said it was set for that. So people were like, yep, well, we're happy with that. So it's staying in that setting, which, yeah, I'm quite happy with. I ran a playtest of it for you a while back
0: and. Mm. I thought the World War II setting was fairly integral to it, so I'm actually very glad that you stuck with that. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I can see how the elements of it could have been reinvented in other ways, but, yeah, I mean, the, the whole setup and everything worked really well there.
2: Right, because I, I started rewriting it as a modern-day adventure set in uh, Arkham University, and uh, I was really getting into it, and then it was like, no, they want World War Two, and I'm like, well, that's fine, but uh, now I've got another scenario idea, so so if you're a backer of our show on patreon by the end of the year you get a copy of it sent to your very door it's a printed fanzine with articles and scenarios and so on if you back us by the end of november not only do you get the fanzine but you'll also receive a christmas card from jackson elias himself or maybe me scott and matt on his behalf
0: (laughs) yes of course as his agents upon this earth
2: yeah And now let's return to The whisper in Darkness with Chapter 2.
0: We spent last episode just really giving the context for the story and going through the first chapter, which admittedly has got a lot of setting information in it. But now we are starting to get into the story itself.
1: In the absence of internet message boards and social media, Wilmarth has been arguing with people in the letters column of the Arkham Advertiser. Some of his letters have been reprinted in the Vermont Press, where they've come to the attention of one Henry Akeley, who challenges Wilmarth's scepticism. That was pretty forward-thinking of Lovecraft to say that there weren't any internet message boards and social media at that time. <laughs> to use.
0: He was so prescient in that respect, wasn't he? you can really actually imagine Lovecraft in the modern day as an internet warrior just having arguments with everyone online. I don't know that I can imagine him trolling, but I can certainly imagine him being a lightning rod for all sorts of arguments.
1: Oh, you see, I've got the picture of him sat down, curled up under a bridge somewhere with his laptop, frantically typing away
2: angrily. (laughs) (laughs) No, it'll be there on the local Providence Facebook group complaining about, you know, me go leaving dog shit on the pavement and (laughs) all that stuff.
0: Sorry, this is going wildly off topic, but given his correspondence with people around the world and this being his, his way of connecting with humanity at large, he really was ahead of his time, or at least a man out of time there, that in the modern day, I think with access to modern day communications, he would have been in his element. I mean, sure, all right, he he was very old-fashioned, and I'm sure he'd complain about the modern day no end, as he complained about the modern day back then. But... At the same time, I can see him completely embracing modern communications technology and spending all his time basically just communicating with
2: people on social media and by
0: email. Hmm.
2: Well, let's get back to the story. Akeley is a gentleman farmer, if there is such a thing, living in rural Vermont. (laughs) Although a recluse, he is highly educated, having been a notable student of mathematics, astronomy, biology, anthropology, and folklore at the University of Vermont. He's obviously got a lot of skill points and wasn't sure where to put them. So, uh, (laughs) you know, they're unlikely to come up, aren't they, really? Astronomy, biology, anthropology. He's going to regret putting those points in there. And they're so helpful with farming. (laughs) Yes, what was he farming? (laughs) He was doing some space farming, mostly
0: xenomorphs. Judging by the number of dogs that he gets through throughout the story, however, he clearly doesn't have many points in animal handling. (laughs) No. (laughs) Despite their differing views, Wilmoth comes to respect Akeley for his scientific approach and open-mindedness, particularly the fact that he doesn't seem to be pushing any particular conclusions from all these various things he's observing in a very sort of Fortean manner, Uh, harking back to last episode. The two men then move into personal correspondence rather than just writing through the letter columns. And Wilmoth tells us that he has since lost the letters and must transcribe their contents from memory.
1: And by God, do they have a lot of letters.
2: They do. It just occurred to me, you know, like Stephen King, typically, you know, his protagonist is an author, you yes. know, in, uh, <laughs> uh, where is it? Um, Maine. Maine. They're, they're Maine, also a recovering
1: yeah. alcoholic. They've usually got bad relationships.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they say right about what you know, but here we've got somebody who writes copious letters. It's totally Lovecraft. You know, Lovecraft and his various correspondents who write reams to each other. So uh, this is very much him sort of fantasising about his relationship with some of his correspondents, I would think.
0: Well, there are very few Lovecraft protagonists, I'd say, who aren't Lovecraft author inserts to some extent. I mean, mm. They may have different jobs and so on, but they are all fundamentally... Sort of these middle class, slightly alienated white blokes, fairly asexual, who have no real attachments beyond maybe a family member or two, but on the whole, just sort of exist in isolation to serve the plot.
2: But yeah, I mean, I'll just make the point here, we actually have, it's very much Mm. couched in letters, you know, more so than his other stories, I think.
1: Yeah. After setting out his background in anthropology and folklore, again, very helpful farming skills there, by listing a string of authors, almost certainly from Lovecraft's own library, Akeley tells Wilmarth, I have certain evidence that monstrous things do indeed live in the woods on the high hills which nobody visits. I wonder if that came from Lovecraft's Vermont first impression.
2: (laughs) Now, as well as finding strange footprints near his home, Akeley has heard even stranger voices coming from the woods. In order to document these, he has taken a phonograph with a dictaphone attachment into the woods to record the strange goings-on. He promises to share the recording with Wilmarth soon. So what is a dictaphone? I always use my hands, but, you know.
1: Someone had to make Ah. that joke.
2: Someone always has to make that joke. It is ritual. (laughs) To be fair, that's the
0: first time I've heard it. (laughs) Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone about a dictaphone where someone hasn't made that joke.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I didn't want to let you down, Scott. (laughs) So I used to have one, actually, but it wasn't probably it didn't use a wax cylinder or not quite that old. You know, it's just like a a little portable device with a little cassette in it. I think I had it in the 90s and you just uh, record. Yeah, (laughs) what I used to do this was before you weren't allowed to use mobile phones in your car or before I had a mobile phone, I think. I used to do a lot of driving and I'd have the dictaphone on the seat next to me so I could pick it up if I got you know, any like inspirations or fantastic ideas <laughs> that I couldn't possibly allow to go to waste for the good of mankind. I'd pick them up and record them.
0: Well, I, I similarly used to keep a dictaphone beside my bed so that if I had any weird dreams that I might be able to call upon for inspiration if I woke up in the middle of the night, I could get them down on tape before they evaporated completely from my brain. And the thing that I discovered there after listening back to those over the course of many months, is my dreams mm. are really shit.
2: Is that how they communicated with you, Scott? <laughs> how, the others, how the others spoke to you? If that's how they
0: speak to me, I wish they'd have more interesting things to say. <laughs> Most of my dreams are stress dreams about trying to do things that I don't fully understand how to do in places I don't fully understand with people I can't communicate with. So basically, it's just
2: like being awake. But really, it is really remarkable. They did have phonographs in like the late 20s, we're talking about, made, you know, with a recording device Mm -hmm. onto a wax cylinder that was portable, you know, that you could take out with you. to It seems like whatever level of technology we have at the time, we kind of go to town with it very quickly and like make it portable and we make it, you know, we, we try and do everything we can with it. And then, you know, in decades to come, it's totally superseded by something much more efficient and much smaller. Mm. I knew about wax cylinder technology, but I did not realise they have these devices. Yeah,
0: and it's probably worth pointing out that Dictaphone is a brand name, which is probably why we associate it with these portable tape devices that we had in our youth, Paul. I guess Matt did as well. But... It was a brand name, so it's one of these things like Hoover or Cellotape or whatever, mm. where it's come to refer to a particular bit of technology, but was a very specific brand. Mm. And in this case, it was the brand of machine that was used for recording these cylinders. So basically, it was, yeah, like you say, this, this wax cylinder with something that looks like a huge ear trumpet, I guess. Mm. This hose attachment that comes out and you point it at whatever it is you're trying to record and it funnels the sound waves down into there and mechanically etches those into the wax cylinder.
1: Uh, I never got on with mine. I had one when I went to university and I found it was just so uh, awkward and fiddly to rewind through the microtape and it was just easier to write shit down, even if I couldn't understand my own handwriting. I still find it a downside quicker than I would on the bloody dictaphone. The only person or character I can think of that ever got one to work at least semi-efficiently, was Agent Cooper in Twin Peaks. I can't think of anyone Ah, else ever using it. So you almost got in the habit of saying, Diane, I've got a note here I need to tell you.
0: (laughs) Yes. I remember reading theories at the time that Diane was actually the name of his dictaphone, which I like.
2: (laughs) Uh, We know better now.
0: (laughs) Yes. You know, I always found them quite useful. Not only that whole experiment with recording memories of dreams, but the way I used them was when I was out and about and having ideas, much like you were talking about there with driving. But in my case, it was usually while walking. I'd keep them in my pocket. And if an idea popped into my head and it wasn't convenient to stop and write it down, then I'd just narrate it into my dictaphone while I was walking. And yeah, I, I found it quite useful. I still do much the same thing with my mobile phone these days.
1: Akeley then makes a number of alarming assertions. The things come from another planet being able to live in interstellar space and fly through it on clumsy, powerful wings. They are watching him and others and use human spies to gather information, such as a sullen fellow named Brown who lives nearby. Brown seems a remarkably mundane name for uh, someone who's consorted or collaborated with alien invaders. <laughs> and
0: he also doesn't really get too involved in the story Akeley keeps mentioning him and then later on just to jump ahead he seems to get killed off screen and that's that and so he's he's like this background presence who just keeps getting dame checked and
2: does absolutely fuck all his cover got blown you see so he had to be taken out Mm. the main reason Akeley thinks he is in danger is that he has found and taken home a great black stone with unknown hieroglyphs half worn away this transgression, he feels, means that they will kill him or take him off the earth to where they come from. Now, has he gleaned this knowledge from the Necronomicon? Because he's trying to decode these hieroglyphs mm. on the black stone that he's found, isn't he? It also strikes me that these migo, they can't fly on earth that well.
0: No, that's not true. We're told that they can't walk well on earth, but they seem to fly ah. just
2: fine. Oh, okay. Because I'm thinking, you know, they're carrying rocks around, mm. essentially, these black stones. That's a, that's a lot of weight to carry around, isn't it? Big black stones. I don't know. But, well, this black
0: stone in particular, with the hieroglyphs carved on it, that is pretty much the 60 stone from the novel of the Black Seal, the eponymous Black mm. Seal. And, I mean, he's borrowed heavily from Macon once again.
1: I can't Do we ever find out what was on the stone? No. Yeah. Yeah. just wonder if it was like a Mego signpost. So like, this way to mine, next sign, eat at Joe's, <laughs> something on the third yeah. sign saying, yeah, egg sky this way. wonder if it was just something completely mundane. I owe you
0: one brain.
1: <laughs> Eldritch scholar that he is,
0: Akeley connects these creatures with the fearful myths antedating the coming of man to the earth, the Yogg-Sothoth and Cthulhu cycles, which are hinted at in the Necronomicon. As Wilmarth is a scholar in Arkham, Aikley just assumes he's read the Necronomicon.
1: Because everyone has! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Again, he was after that chapter in the Necronomicon that helped with the eldritch sowing of seeds uh, what time of year to put them out under what stars to get the best crops. <laughs> uh, Old
0: Abdul's almanac. <laughs>
1: <laughs> For now, though, Aikley is protected by the police dogs that guard his farm. Yeah, poor things, as we mentioned. He's going to get through a lot of them. He promises to send Wilmarth the recording and some supporting photographs soon. He keeps referring to these things as police dogs
0: all the way through the story. He also refers to the fact that they're coming from a kennel, so I assume, or a dog breeder. So I assume that when he says police dogs, he doesn't mean that they were trained as police dogs or former police dogs or anything. Merely that they're Alsatians or German Shepherds, and he's just using that as a, a term for the breed.
2: That's kind of what I assumed, yeah, yeah. Wilmarth isn't sure what to make of this letter. It seems ridiculous, but something about the tone makes him take it seriously. Intrigued, he drafts a reply. By return,
0: Eakley sends Wilmarth a number of troubling photographs... Depicting tracks on the ground that are hideously crab like and about the size of an average man's foot.
1: That is a big crab. Mm. Well,
0: you've seen photographs, I assume, online of what is it, coconut crabs that you get in, I think it's Hawaii. They crop up every now and then, these huge crabs. There's a, a fantastic photograph which dust the rounds fairly regularly of the, one of these clinging to the outside of a fairly standard size rubbish bin, outdoor rubbish bin. Mm. And this thing just basically is like half the size of the bin. It looks like a face
1: hugger from Alien. Mental note another place not to go. <laughs> Other photographs show a cave mouth and a druid like circle of standing stones on the summit of a wild hill. The hills are always wild it's a bit like the moon yeah. always being gibbous they rise wild indeed <laughs> the most disturbing pictures however are those of the great black stone discovered by Aitley.
0: never before had i seen anything which struck me as so strangely and unmistakably alien to this world of the hieroglyphics on the surface i could discern very few but one or two that I did see gave me rather a shock. Of course, they might be fraudulent, for others beside myself had read the monstrous and abhorred Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Alhazred. But it nevertheless made me shiver to recognise certain ideographs which study had taught me to link with the most blood-curdling and blasphemous whispers of things that had a kind of mad half-existence before the Earth and the other inner worlds
2: of the solar system were made. The remaining pictures show Akeley, his farm, his dogs and some more odd prints in the ground near them. After looking at these and reading the accompanying transcript of what Akeley heard in the woods, Wilmarth begins to piece these elements together.
1: I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of connections. Yogoth, Great Cthulhu, Sathogwa, Yogsothoth, Relay, Nihalathotep, Azathoth, Hastur, Yan, Leng, The Lake of Harley, Bethmora, The Yellow Sign... Lamar Cathulos Bran, and the magnum innominandum, and was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder, outer entity, at which the crazed author of the Necronomicon had only guessed in the vaguest way. Well,
0: blimey, that is quite the litany of names. Yeah, wow. So we got Yagoth there, which obviously originates in this story so this is as we will discover the name of what we will also come to know as pluto but
1: what about the rest never heard of the second one
0: yeah great cthulhu that will never catch on mm-hmm. so we've got sathocua obviously from clark ashton smith we talked about him back in the episode on the seven Gears. Mm-hmm.
2: does yogoth start in this one he's already written i think the fungi from yogoth
0: ah
2: has he most of the sonnets for this fungi from Yogoth were written between twenty nine and January and thirty. Oh, okay. Although in that he doesn't necessarily say that Yogoth is a place, I believe, so or a planet. So I think he kind of retrofits that name as being the name of the planet.
1: I think it's in one of the early sonnets in the cycle where he says that he realised it was Yogoth past the starry void. So it does imply that it is a place. But not necessarily a planet, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, if it's past the starry void, that would seem to place it outside our solar system. Hmm. So, yeah, he seems to have changed his mind about that then.
2: Then we get a list of gods that we recognise, some being Lovecrafts, some being those of other people. We've got uh, Great Cthulhu, Sathogba, Yogg-Sothoth and so on, and a few places that we recognise. Well, first of all,
0: we've got Hastur. This is, again, Hastur coming into the Cthulhu mythos here, because prior to this, as we talked about in our King in Yellow episodes, Hasta started out as a reference in Ambrose Bierce, and then it was picked up by Robert W. Chambers as probably a place, maybe even a person, and now suddenly is just a name here and then yeah. later on it becomes a god and becomes connected again with the king in the yellow in different ways than chamber imagined. That one little passing reference there, and there's another one later in the story, really sort of brings all of that into the Cthulhu mythos. So that's really significant.
1: You can say the same about the Lake of Harley that appears a couple, mm. of, a couple of entries down the list because those two pretty mm. much come hand in hand.
0: And the yellow sign, which also comes on the same list. Mm-hmm. Yan... Yeah. That one rings a small bell. Yeah, that, that's from Robert W. Chambers' The Maker of Moons, ah. which is another one of his weird tales, which I read a while back. And, you know, like a lot of Chambers's non-king in yellow stuff even though I read that what a year or 18 months ago it's not really stuck all the details have fallen out of my mind it <laughs> yeah. really it was an entertaining enough story to read at the time but you know as far
1: as memorable aspects are concerned <laughs> I was going to say very memorable because it made that much of an
2: impression <laughs> yeah and then as Matt referenced I think in the last episode we got a mention of Beth Mora from um, Lord Dunsany oh yes yep.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and we get the yellow sign again from Chambers Lumur Cthulhos yeah. is this
0: so Cthulhu's there, I mean, it sounds like Cthulhu, doesn't it? And the Lemur bit, it makes me think of Lemuria.
2: This is Howard,
0: isn't it? Cthulhu, yeah, was the name of a sorcerer from Robert E. Howard's story, Skullface.
2: During this time, Lovecraft and Howard as we said earlier, writing letters. They're, they're writing lots of letters to each other mm-hmm. during this time. And in one of his letters, Robert E. Howard thanks Lovecraft for you know, the mention of the murk Thulos and Brown and so on. Yeah, because Bran
0: would seem to be a reference to Bran McMahon, mm. who was the Pictish hero of a number of Robert E. Howard's more adventurous stories. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Magnum.
1: The Magnum Unpronounceable.
0: I think that's another Howard thing. I don't know. Is it not? It's obviously Latin, and it translates as roughly the great that which should not be named or the great do not name or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's just something that Lovecraft came up with for this because it sounded cool. Fair enough. You love reusing obscure elements from Lovecraft stories. I don't know if anyone's ever done anything with that map.
1: No, I think they have, because I think it's been used as the nameless mist. The mist that no. permeates limbo, the space between the spheres of realities, that where you find the ultimate gate in Through the Gates of the Silver Key. I think that's how it's ah, being okay. used later.
2: Akeley decides that any further correspondence with Wilmarth must now be private. Public discussion risks attracting the wrong kind of attention, or encouraging others to poke around in the hills and mountains where they should not. Mm. So the migo can read too. Oh yes.
0: Well, yes. I mean, not only read, but as we see indications later, perhaps even write.
1: And at the very least, they have human agents. They can scribble hieroglyphics. So yeah, I can hope they can write.
0: Oh no, no. It looks like they might even be able to type letters.
1: Spoilers.
0: <laughs> but in his notes, looking back at the whole affair, Wilmarth also mentions how he wishes that the new planet beyond Neptune had not been discovered.
2: And now we move on to Chapter 3 of The Whisperer in Darkness. And
1: this, dear listeners, is the letter chapter. <laughs> Sometime later, Wilmarth receives the phonograph record Akeley is growing increasingly paranoid, posting his letters from neighbouring towns to avoid human agents of the aliens from tampering with them.
0: Mail fraud is considered to be a big crime in the US. They take it seriously. And there is even a branch of the federal government that is a special law enforcement arm that's part of the post office that is there to prosecute mail fraud. And is actually one of the most feared parts of the the law enforcement apparatus. And quite
2: rightly so. Those dumb Mego, they're, you know,
0: messing it up. But as a result, it occurs to me that if you were basing a scenario on the Whisper in Darkness, or at least riffing on it, that you could perhaps have investigators who are members of the mm. mail fraud unit, or whatever they're called, who are looking at all these letters going missing and packages going missing and so on, and find out that it's all part of this sinister alien conspiracy.
1: Isn't that very similar to how The Great and Secret Show starts? When I remember starting to read it years ago, that the main character in the start of the book is a post office employee and basically sat on this huge pile of returned mail or hasn't got to its destination.
2: Oh. It's the dead letter office, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that it's by reading through those letters that he discovers magic.
2: Anyway, Wilmarth borrows a gramophone from the university and listens to the record. The recording was made in the woods on May Eve which Wilmarth associates with a witch's sabbat. I love
1: the idea that his dictaphone is more accurate and can pick up more stuff than my one that I had at university.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's because you didn't have a big fuck-off ear trumpet attached
1: to yours. That's where I went wrong. The recording captures a number of buzzing voices and one human one. Not browns, but someone more cultured, with an accent Wilmarth describes as mellow and Bostonian. Wilmarth struggles to make out some of what is recorded, piecing together fragments. Indistinguishable sounds. A cultivated male human voice.
0: Is the lord of the woods even to, And the gifts of the men of Leng. So from the wells of night to the gulfs of space and from the gulfs of space to the wells of night, ever the praises of great Cthulhu, of Sarthogua, and of him who is not to be named. Ever their praises and abundance to the black goat of the woods, shub Shubnigarath, the goat with a thousand young.
1: A buzzing imitation of human speech.
2: Ia Shubnigarath, the black goat of, of the woods with
1: a thousand, thousand young. Human voice. And it has
0: come to pass that the lord of the woods, being seven and nine down the onyx steps, butes to him in the gulf, Azathoth, he of whom thou hast taught us marvel. On the wings of night, out beyond space, out beyond the to that whereof Yagoth is the youngest child, rolling alone in black ether at the rim.
1: Buzzing voice.
2: Go out, out. one man, and find the ways thereof. That he in the Gulf, we know. To me, Alathotep, mighty messenger. Must all things be told? And he shall put on the semblance of man, the waxen mask and the robe that hides, and come down from the world of seven
1: suns to walk. Human
0: voice. tip, great messenger. Bringer of strange joy to Yagoth throughout the void, father of the million favoured ones, stalker among.
1: I'd like to take the opportunity to thank our guest actors from the Black Lodge who came to uh, take the part of the uh, ego there. <laughs> dancing backwards while they performed that was a sight to see on on the video chat just, just
0: play paul's parts there backwards to get the true meaning of this episode
2: yeah don't ever do that
0: my <laughs> podcast you like is coming back into style
2: i wasn't sure if you'd get that that's what i was going for but oh okay. absolutely yeah all right it was clear okay i didn't know if it was just in my head so yeah, I mean, this is quite a, a cool thing that we get this, uh, well, recording of some uh, occult ritual taking place in the woods. Yeah. You know, we don't get that in the Dunwich Horror, do we, I don't think. We, no. we we hear of such things happening on on Sentinel Hill, but we don't get an actual witness account of it like that.
0: At the same time, mm. it's quite a weird thing, isn't it? Because mm. we've got this image, perhaps through the story and perhaps through things that have followed, the Migo being these sort of very scientific creatures these these creatures of technology and of greater than human understanding and to see them performing a ritual that is very much like a sort of witch's sabbath is odd i not necessarily jarring or wrong but it sort of adds a a spin to the whole thing and also when you think of human cultists in call of cthulhu you perhaps tend to think of the cargo cult approach where they've got imperfect knowledge and sort of aping alien rituals or performing acts in favour of gods that don't even know they're there. Here you have these alien entities who are on a different level of understanding to us and doing something almost quite similar.
2: Mm. Black magic comes from the stars. Well, yeah, that is Lovecraft in a nutshell. And we interpret these as both being Mego, the buzzing voice and the human voice. Well, that's interesting because
0: there have been all sorts of, as you'd expect with this being Lovecraft analyses of this, and there certainly are people who believe that the cultured male voice, and there is Nyarlathotep himself, which kind of makes some of the
2: things a bit um, masturbatory. Well, he's talking about himself then, because in that last line, he's saying, Nyarlathotep, great messenger, bringer of joy to goth." That doesn't really make a lot of sense no. that that's Nalatha Tep. I don't really get that.
1: I'd like to just think of it as that it is just a human cultist. If anything, I find that a bit more scary, that you've got a human that has that kind of knowledge and is actively out there using it, hmm. rather than a god coming down from the stars to have a little self-congratulatory speech in the woods with no with no purpose.
2: So do we think the, the human cultist there is acting of their own volition how human are they or are they kind of controlled by the ego or are they just ser- humans serving the ego i'm not quite clear i'm kind of leaning more towards the latter hmm. well it seems to be leading
0: the ceremony which is i guess one of the arguments in favor of being Nealithotep, that it seems to be taking on the role of priest in that case
1: i like the idea that niallathotep's secretly from boston
0: yeah, I know. <laughs> I love the image of, of Nyarlathotep with this broad Boston accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounding like Brian Cautamage.
2: <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking played yeah. by our good friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, Brian's a lovely guy. He's fooled us all. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, if he is an avatar of Nyarlathotep, this is on another level.
0: And you have this passing reference to the million favoured
2: ones. What the hell are those? They're in the Malleus Monstrorum. Okay. Probably from here, right? But yeah, what are the million favoured ones? Whoa, I was asking you.
0: I know Lynn Carter yeah. wrote a story <laughs> called The Million Favoured Ones, but I i don't think I've
1: actually read it. This is from the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia 3rd edition by Dan Har- Daniel Harms. Million favoured ones, beings said to be Neaphalotec's spawn, although this relationship is likely only symbolic. These favoured ones are said to come from all the worlds of the universe that serve their lord Niathotep unswervingly. And this is credited as the first entry, or the first instance in which the creatures, plural, make their appearance in fiction. And the other one I think Scott just mentioned is The Million Favoured Ones by Carter.
2: Yes, and they have an entry in the Malleus Monstrorum from uh, Chaosium for Call of Cthulhu, the million favoured ones, each one being a a unique servant, or favoured one, as it says, of Nihalathotep. It
0: only just occurred to me that million favoured isn't hyphenated. I'd initially interpreted it as the ones that have had a million favours bestowed on them by Nihalathotep, but the fact that it's not hyphenated indicates that there are a million of them, and they are
1: his favoured ones. Since when does he do favours to people?
0: Well, they're not people, are
1: they? Uh, Not anymore. (laughs) (laughs) The sound of the alien buzzing voice terrifies Wilmarth. In his imagination, it is a morbid echo winging its way across unimaginable abysses from unimaginable outer hells, It was like the drone of some loathsome gigantic insect ponderously shaped into the articulate speech of an alien species. By God, he's got an imagination if that's the first thing that that sound
2: summons up in his head. Yeah. It's not just imagination, though, is it? (laughs) No, his imagination seems to be right on the money there. (laughs) And Wilmarth listens to the record over and over again, analysing it. He decides that the creatures are entities from the planet Yoggoth. Itself merely the populous outpost of a frightful interstellar race whose ultimate source must lie far outside, even the Einsteinian space-time continuum. That's a hell of a leap.
0: Also, that's Lovecraft again being pretty cutting edge with his scientific references.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I had a similar experience listening to Dark Side of the Moon in the early 80s, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that was the acid, wasn't it, Paul? (laughs) I can't comment on that.
0: Akeley and Wilmarth continue to correspond, especially about the Blackstone. Despite Akeley's precautions, some of his letters start to go astray. His dogs are growing more and more agitated at night, and he keeps finding monstrous claw prints
1: around his property. When Akeley finally decides to send the Blackstone to Wilmarth, the package never arrives, apparently disappearing from the train carrying it. Wilmarth tries to trace it and speaks to a railway express
2: clerk who relates a curious story. A man, giving the name of Stanley Adams, made inquiries about a different box on the same train, one that did not seem to exist. The man had such a queerly thick, droning voice that it had made the clerk abnormally dizzy and sleepy to listen to him.
1: This is reminding me a lot of the Call of Cthulhu now. Hmm. The fact you've got this uh, sinister cult that are starting to erase all evidence of their existence. Seems like we've, we've trod this ground before.
2: Were you talking about the story of The Call of yes. Tulu? Mm. Mm-hmm. But actually here, you know, this is more like... The kind of actions we perhaps see cults and so on doing in the game in Call of Cthulhu. Mm. Whereas in the actual Call of Cthulhu, the story, they seem a bit more of a nebulous influence. He's afraid they're going to get him, but we don't actually see such detailed kind of machinations from them as like interfering with parcels. Yeah, you know, such kind of mundane interference. Well, they, they drop papers and a guy miraculously dies. Yeah, but this thing of like, blocking the post it's clear that this guy Stanley Adams has, has gone up and sort of used some occult influence or a confusion spell or, or something like that on this guy and he's oh I can't really remember now I remember the guy come up to me and he had this weird voice and then yeah, you know, next thing I knew you know I was halfway to the next place on the train you know, he's just kind of confused and he hadn't really realized he
1: kind of looked into that flashing light at the end of this little silver stick yeah. with this guy dressed in a black suit yeah
0: but this is something we see quite a lot in, I mean, not just Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraft in horror, but in this kind of fiction in general. It was a staple of the X-Files, for example. The fact that the protagonists keep finding evidence and then having it snatched away or being denied that you can never really hold on to concrete proof for very long. It's a, I guess, a useful trope sometimes in games, but I don't know. I mean, Personally, I find it quite frustrating. I think is this desperate attempt to, in fiction, preserve the status quo, to stop these secrets coming out and changing things. And I don't know. Sometimes I think it's more interesting if they do get out there and if they do start changing things. There's also a fairly big assumption that if these bits of evidence get out there that people will believe them anyway. What do you two make of that, This this idea of here's the evidence, here's what you need to prove it, or snatch, take it away.
1: <laughs> no, I agree with you, it's very, very much the X-Files, and it is very, after you've seen about the first 20 or 30 times that that happens, it starts to get a little tedious. In a game, I would be a little bit kind of, oh, maybe once, but twice, and you're, you're getting a bit frustrating.
2: No, I don't mind it here. I think this is this is intriguing, our protagonist, Will Mart seeding him to go there to actually meet Akeley because mm. this thing didn't arrive if it was towards the end of the story and he'd got all the stuff parallel it with what you're talking about I think you know he'd have all the stuff and then he'd you know pop out to the cafe come back and oh some robbers have come in and taken it all away. that kind of sucks but here, it's it's like part of the story. It's, this is sinister. It, was, it yeah. was mailed to him. It's documented it. You know, it should have been on the train. And now it's not. And this is part of the mystery, I think. Sort of this instance of it,
0: yes. But it crops up again as a trope a couple more times in this story. That every time there is evidence, it gets destroyed. It disappears. It gets taken away. It can't be photographed. It sort of helps explain why... Lovecraft telling this story can say, look, this is happening in the real world. You just haven't heard of it because all the evidence keeps going away. And Mm. it helps with that whole suspension of disbelief. That's a very important thing to Lovecraft of making the mundane side of the story plausible. But I think by the end of the story, it gets a bit tiresome.
1: Well, Wilmarth relates this to Akeley, who speaks of the undoubted telepathic and hypnotic powers of the hill creatures and their agents. He later hints that he does not believe the stone is on this earth any longer. Well, that's what happens when you mail it to Yoggoth. Of course it's not going to stay on the earth. How much is the postage? Well, if it's anything like trying to send airmail to the US now, that costs us a fucking fortune. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You've got Akeley who's speaking here of the undoubted telepathic and hypnotic powers of the hill creatures and their agents. Mm. So is this a spell that the the Migo have got that they've taught their human agents? Is this an innate ability that the Migo have got to confound human minds through telepathy? And they've taught the techniques. Are uh, what people assume are the human agents actually me go in disguise using these innate abilities? I mean, what do you make of that?
1: I think it's a spell. It's like cloud memory or one of the many mind altering or mind influencing spells that there are in the grimoire.
2: Yeah, I'd certainly say in the hands of the agents, you know, the human agents, you know, they've been in Call of Cthulhu role playing game terms. They've been taught, like you say, Matt. They've used the cloud memory spell. But I guess if it's the MIGA themselves, we can sort of rationalize that. We could use the the cloud memory, but say it's an innate ability rather than a a kind of learnt spell, you know, because they have this, um, reputed to have this kind of telepathic communication,
0: um, Mm.
2: which I've always kind of figured is, uh, you know, they're able to sort of speak and you hear them inside your head as this kind of buzzing voice. And that, you know, that equally they may be able to, you'll hear this, buzzing voice and not want to listen to it but it has a hypnotic power over people so you have to maybe make a power roll to resist its influence because in call of cthulhu the migo aren't that powerful physically but but you know with that that telepathic influence i think is a is a key part of them and their technology is pretty strong as well yeah Mm. definitely
0: And again, I mean, this might be a technological thing they're doing. I mean, these might be hidden devices they've got Mm. that are causing people to have foggy memories and be hypnotized. There's also that throwaway bit that we mentioned in the last episode about the hermits and remote farmers who made alliances with the creatures undergoing a repellent mental change. I guess you could perhaps even extrapolate that exposure to the Migo and their telepathic influences and their ideas and their rituals and so on fundamentally change human consciousness, that the people who come into their circle, their minds are changed, their abilities are changed, and maybe they just learn these techniques, maybe the structures their brains change to emulate their new masters, and this is just now something they can do.
2: Yeah, don't we see something a bit like that in Arrival? You know, the movie where the this alien craft comes down and just trying to communicate with the things changes people.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the the exploration of the sapir whorf hypothesis, originally from Ted Chiang's story, A Story of Your Life, which was the basis for Arrival, which is that idea that our perceptions of reality are shaped fundamentally by language, that we can only perceive things if we have the linguistic structures in our brain to understand them. So the idea that, for example, you can only see certain colours if you have names for them, that in some cultures, there's no difference between blue and green, but because we differentiate in, in the English language between blue and green, they appear to be very mm. distinct colors to us. Yeah, it's you know, a controversial idea within linguistics, and I think it's been fairly roundly debunked, but I may be wrong there. But I mean, that's something that I think you could play around with an awful lot in Call of Cthulhu. Th- these alien languages and exposure to alien influences and ideas and so on, and just rewriting human consciousness and perception and so on, and changing people's interactions with the mundane world.
1: I'd probably go one step further with Migo cultists or agents. And if you ever ended up doing a post mortem on them and then having a look at the brain, that it started to grow more fungal in various places oh. and it becomes more like the Migo themselves and therefore be able to comprehend their abilities and powers.
2: Yeah, yeah. I like the sound of that.
1: Got a big old mushroom in your head.
2: <laughs> yeah. Bit off topic, but that's sounding a little bit rivers of London, actually. There it's a cauliflower.
1: I wouldn't know. I've not read any of
2: them. The idea being if you use too much magic, your brain looks a bit like a rotten cauliflower. Hypothaumaturgical degradation, it's called.
0: Yeah, there's a similar idea in the laundry books from Charles Stross that magic in it is fundamentally dangerous because it basically invites connections with certain trans-dimensional parasites that basically literally eat away little chunks of your brain people who practice a lot of magic end up with this very specific form of dementia where their brains basically look like swiss
1: cheese i like swiss cheese between swiss cheese cauliflowers and mushrooms i think i'd go with the mushroom I think you get a good dinner out of that mm. well there you go cauliflower cheese there's a meal right there zombies
0: are right and i guess there are real world parallels to that uh, kuru is that the name of the disease it's a form of prion disease, similar to Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which cannibals, I think particularly in Papua New Guinea, were subject to because there was a ritualistic part of their culture wherein they ate the brains of people who... I can't remember whether it was a sacrament for people they've respected or a way of asserting dominance over people that they killed. Mm. But either way, there was a a ritualised eating of human brains. And this led to the spread of a very specific prion disease that you could only get by eating human brains.
2: I would say as displays of dominance go, eating your brain is pretty high on, on the ranking.
0: But on the other hand, you can also see how it might be a form of sacrament that the the brain represents who the person really was, and you want to bring that within you. But either way, it's a really fucking stupid idea because because of prions.
2: I was happy with the cauliflower cheese myself, but... This is your brain on brain. And that brings us to the end of Chapter 3 of H.P. Lovecraft: The Whisperer in Darkness.
1: Thank Thank you, thank you! You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at BlasphemousTomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at Patreon.com forward slash Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
0: Well, once again, we would like to say thank you to an awful lot of people. Thank you, first of all, to you. Yes, you, you, sitting right there listening to us. Thank you for listening to us. We, we appreciate that. And thank you very much to anyone who has backed us at any stage. And we have a whole bunch of new people to thank by name.
2: We sure do. So uh, let's kick things off with a thanks to Logan Coe. And thank you very much to P. Troilus. And thank you very much to Caden Whiteman. And thanks to Ryan Thurmond. And thank you very much to Stefan Hoyle.
0: And I'll preface this with our normal caveat about how we hope we're getting your names right. And if we are completely screwing it up, then please, please get in contact and we will re-say your name in accordance with your directions.
2: Or possibly wrong a second time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But we will do
0: our best. Our, our ability to screw things up is boundless. But with all that in mind, thank you very much to Jonathan Dariki,
2: And thanks
1: to Ryan Finn. And very familiar name here. Thank you very much to David Brewer. Uh
0: Aha, yes. Welcome back into the fall, David. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to John and Fee Devon.
2: And thanks very much to Phil Ladusa. And thank you very much to Chris Peterson. And finally,
0: thank you very much to Kevin Noah.
2: All right, well... Penny more whisper in Darkness to come. It's a rich story. It's interesting. It's
0: really quite a simple story in terms of what happens in it, but it's so rich with detail that I'm finding we've got a lot more to speak about than I'd anticipated. Initially, I thought this was going to be like three episodes, and I imagine at this rate it's going to be five.
1: For effectively a story that some people swap around some letters, a guy visits a farmhouse, runs away, there is a lot to talk about. <laughs>
2: Well, friends, join us again next episode when we kick things off with Chapter 4 of H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in Darkness. But until then, it's a good night from me. and Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me.
1: Hello.
0: BlasphemousTomes.com
2: I think we've gone off topic.